This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We talked about a New York Times reporting that Pfizer and Moderna expanding vaccine studies of children under 11. We've also talked about, or you've heard certainly on Bloomberg, about COVID infections globally increasing the most in two months amid the spread of the Delta variant, a surge across the U.S. and low vaccination levels in most Southeast Asian nations. And New York City, Tim, saying all municipal workers will be required to receive a vaccine or get tested weekly. We just talked about that. Yeah, just some of the things we're thinking about when it comes to the virus and vaccine. Joining us now is Dr. Harold Paz, Chief Executive Officer at Wexner Medical Center, also Chancellor of Health Affairs at The Ohio State University. On the phone from Columbus, Ohio, Ohio, Dr. Paz, it's great to have you back on the program. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's great to be back. Appreciate the opportunity. Definitely. Well, I think the big concern that among at least people in my own universe has to be breakthrough infections and the Delta variant. It's it's one of the things that, that we are certainly thinking about, especially as kids under the age of 12 still cannot be uh, vaccinated. So I'm wondering, what evidence do we have right now? Uh, about how somebody who is infected with a a breakthrough, uh, can they pass it to somebody who isn't vaccinated? Yeah, so um, there certainly is the possibility that if someone has um, uh, an infection, they've been vaccinated and they they are infected now with one of the uh, COVID-19 variants, they could pass it. It really depends on a number of factors, um, particularly their immune status. There are some individuals that uh, are um, not going to achieve the kind of immunity we want to see after they're vaccinated. Uh, Here, we've seen at the Wexner Medical Center, um, admitted to the hospital, 10% of individuals who are fully vaccinated. And uh, and in in those cases, these are individuals that have a, are immunocompromised because of an underlying disease or, or are undergoing active cancer treatment. If they have high, high enough viral counts, there is the possibility that they could transmit it. But these are, you know, these are the exception, not the rule. The, the, the opportunity is, is for all of us to, to get vaccinated. And, you know, we're learning a lot now uh, with additional studies around how to best handle individuals that are, are, you know, in an age group or have underlying conditions where they may need an additional booster and um, because of their increased risk. Well, how should we how should we think about that? People within who who do have an increased risk. I mean, should should it, it's this it's this strange sort of scenario that we're in right now. Because if we were to think back where we were at the beginning of the summer, it was sort of like okay, we are very happy right now. Things are getting back to normal. We don't have to mm-hmm. wear masks anymore. And suddenly mm-hmm. we're in this situation where it's like okay, now people now health experts are talking about wearing masks again, even if you've been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, we need to I think put all this into a, into context. So if we go back to March of 2020, the original strain in the US, since then, we are we've had four variants that have come forward. So alpha from the UK, beta that first was detected in South Africa, gamma originally detected in Brazil and Japan, and now Delta, which was originally detected in India. And as you mentioned, Delta is now quickly spreading and becoming um, the most prevalent um, right now. And we know that in part because it is uh, 40 to 60 percent more contagious than Alpha. And Alpha was 50 percent more contagious than the original 
additional strain that we all saw. Right now in the U.S., Delta is responsible for 30% of all COVID cases, and we're going to continue, I believe, to see Delta become more and more prevalent. It's important to remember, though, that infections, contagiousness, and and lethality of the virus are two different things. And I mentioned this, I think, mm. when I was on previously. Yeah. You know, think of a virus like Ebola, exceptionally lethal. Obviously, it is not a pandemic. On the other hand, as these variants in COVID develop, the, the more they become contagious, the more and they can spread. There's no evidence that we have right now that the Delta variant is more lethal than the earlier variants we've seen in the U.S. Um, obviously, that's something we have to keep um, watching carefully, but it, it also does follow the natural evolution of viruses. If they're going to become more contagious, they can't kill the hosts, obviously. It would, you know, that would be a tragic set of circumstances. Could it happen? Sure. But um, that's something we just don't see. Right. That's often a, a question line, Dr. Paz, that we are, uh, that we pursue here to understand that do we get to a point where there is a variant that is not only more contagious, but also more lethal, which would be not a good combination. Is that inevitable or not necessarily? Well, again, we can only base what we know on on past experience with uh, viral infections as well as with the data we have right now. And right now, we don't see evidence that the Delta variant is more lethal than the earlier uh, variants that we've experienced here in this country around the world. But we continue to collect that information. The surest thing we can do is get everybody vaccinated. And those that are in exceptionally high-risk groups, those that are immunocompromised, Look at the studies that suggest giving them a booster as well. That's what we need to do to protect everyone. And, and we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole point of this is to prevent people from dying, right. from winding up in the hospital. That's what we're trying to do. People have already been reinfected um, or have um, become infected after being vaccinated. But quite frankly, if the worst thing they have is a cold, And I remember when I came on the first time, I mentioned that, you know, we believe 15% of the time going back for a long time, the common cold was caused by some coronavirus. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Tim Stenovic. Well, uh, earlier uh, we had uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, of course, the nation's top doctor when it comes to COVID and the vaccine, catching up on CNN. And he talked about the nation, the United States, going in the wrong direction. Check it out. I'm not so sure it would be the worst case scenario, but it's not going to be good. We're going in the wrong direction. If you look at the inflection of the curve of new cases, and as you said in the run-in to this interview, that it is among the unvaccinated. And since we have 50% of the country is not fully vaccinated, that's a problem. All right. And that, of course, was Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, yesterday on CNN talking about what's going on when it comes to COVID and the vaccine and the progress or process here in the United States. Let's get back to Dr. Harold Paz. He's Executive VP, Chancellor for Health Affairs at The Ohio State University, CEO of Wexner Medical Center. It's a massive enterprise, hospitals, College of Medicine Research and more. Former Chief Medical Officer of Aetna, still with us on the phone from Columbus, Ohio. So how do we, Dr. Paz, Tim and I talk about this a lot. So we both have the vaccine. We feel pretty comfortable. And that even if we get COVID, we're probably in a good shape. A lot of those around us, whether who we work with, our families have also gotten that. But how do we need to start thinking about 
a booster shot, especially as there's more and more research about the efficacy or the waning efficacy of these vaccines on younger people, older people. There's a lot of moving parts on this. So how do we need to maybe mark our calendars about what we need to do next? Right. So great question. First of all, let me just reiterate what uh, uh, Anthony Fauci said. Here in Columbus at the Wexner Medical Center, 90% of the patients who have been admitted to our hospitals with active COVID-19 have, have either been unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. That's mm-hmm. uh, it's just, mm-hmm. I can't give you better evidence to support what he said. Only 10% have been fully vaccinated and all of them to an individual are either an active cancer treatment or have some underlying immune disorder. I mean, it's staggering when you look at that. And when we think about younger people now getting infected with the Delta variant, because it's so much more contagious, I don't know what else we can do other than convince everyone to get this vaccine, unless there's some medical reason uh, why they can't. I mean, this is what it's all about. It's about saving lives. And I think that as we get more and more data about how these vaccines impact our immune response to COVID, it's making antibodies, but it's also cellular immune response. T cells, for example, how they respond to the virus, we'll know more about getting a booster, how long the vaccine protects us for. Keep in mind, we had a pandemic a century ago, H1N1. Mm -hmm. Influenza hasn't gone away. It comes back every year. And all of us, I hope all of us, go out and get a vaccine for the flu. Because every year, tens of thousands of people in the U.S. die of influenza. So we want to prevent that from happening. We all get our annual flu vaccine. I suspect that as a result of the variants and what we've seen evolve now over more than a a year and a half, we're going to be in a situation where the foreseeable future, we're going to have to think of strategies about getting boosters or additional vaccine to protect us from winding up very sick in the hospital on a ventilator or dying. One more point. We are doing more lung transplants now than we've seen before. Those are lung transplants for COVID-19 survivors. That's wow. not a situation we want to have in this country. Is it, does it get to a point where the way that this virus just burns off is similar to what happened in 1918, 1919, where the people who are not vaccinated, and we weren't talking about vaccines then, but the people who are not vaccinated, uh, they become sick or uh, even worse, uh, and then they get immunity, right, as a result, if they, if they do not die from this. And we just have about 30 seconds left. Well, but the immunity doesn't last forever when you're infected. And we know, for example, infections with COVID don't offer the same protection for the variants as getting a vaccine. So it's the vaccine that offers much better protection than getting an infection. Um, And, you know, with the influenza, it never really did go away. H1N1 comes back annually, but that's why we get an influenza shot. Right. And that's really kind of increasingly how we need to think about all of this. Hey, Dr. Paz, thank you so much. Always a treat when you join us. Dr. Harold Paz, he's Chancellor for Health Affairs at The Ohio State University, CEO of Wexner Medical Center, with a great perspective on everything that's going on today. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Our world we know disrupted by the COVID pandemic, more e-commerce, more technology and automation everywhere, virtual medicine, 
Also, the relationship between employee and employer has changed because of ramped up remote working. And as a result, one of the most sought after management jobs right now is something akin, Tim, to a remote work czar. A remote work czar. It's a shortcut to the C-suite for rising professionals. Joining us now to tell us all about it is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. He joins us on the access line from Brooklyn. Also, Matt Boyle, U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone uh, from New York City. Joel, uh, the rise of the remote, the vice president of productivity and remote experience, it's, it's not necessarily something that I knew w- would really exist even in a post-COVID world. I didn't, I didn't either, and that's what um, sort of uh, caught my attention about it. But as you would expect, um, this last year has changed um, a lot of stuff. Uh, and in the C-suite, I think there was a recognition that there, that there was a new role that needed to be created. And, and I was not only surprised to hear the title of the role, but also learned that it, it is sort of a shortcut. So, so Matt, take us uh, inside that conversation, and, and how many of these positions are, are really cropping up? Yeah, that's hard to say at the moment, um, but we, we do know, because it might not be called specifically that, but we do know that there are going to be people sort of, you know, whose responsibilities include making sure that remote workers um, are engaged, you know, are productive. Um, there's been so much debate over, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, when you uh, spend your day on Zoom, uh, if you're home all day, you're going to be as productive. And I think the case is clear that, you know, workers certainly are as productive, if not more productive, working from home. The pandemic has proved that. But, um, you know, are they happy? Are they thinking of leaving? And that's something that this role would help figure out. Um, so you'd have somebody, you know, sort of responsible for your entire remote workforce. And those workforces are growing, of course. Uh, we could have as many as one in five workers primarily working from home uh, in three years do some research uh, we've seen. Uh, so you really need somebody to sort of, you know, oversee all of them. And, and that's what this role, uh, you know, long compass. Right. You know what, Joel, though, you know, I'm listening to Matt talk and I'm wondering, is this going to be more like a remote work police person, policing people, making sure they're really working while they're at home? Or is this more about remote work cultivator, like remote war work guru, like really thinking about how flexible we can be in terms of how we work. Because I feel like there are companies that embrace it and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, no, you've got to get back to the office. Like it's back and forth so much. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, to to try try and answer your question, I think it's going to start with the latter, right? Like this is an attempt to recognize that the workforce has changed, the workplace has changed. Can we get a flexible executive style thinking um, uh, talent sort of in charge of these challenges that the workforce um, is going to face? I think that's where the position probably is going to start. But then I think it probably if we think out, you know, down the line here a couple of years. I think it has the potential to put, you know, to potentially become a little bit more of that enforcer to be like, how many people are actually online doing their job right now? But I don't think it's starting there necessarily. I think, I think that's potentially where it could go. But Matt, Matt, I I want to ask about, yeah, I just want Matt, I want to bring you back in and, and talk about um, uh, the survey. And, you know, a lot of this is uh, rooted in this um, uh, Cowan Partners uh, who, who said in the in you know in your story that you know this is one of the ten most sought after management jobs right now, and and so talk to me because it, part of me thinks is like and we put this in the headline a little bit if this is truly like a shortcut to the C suite there's going to be a lot of talented people who are just going to be looking to 
change potentially career tracks and like so what kind of person fulfills this this job description currently i mean you have to already have experience leading large teams that's sort of a a sine qua non of of this role you you know whether you've been running a call center or you've been running you know um, a factory or what have you, um, having experience leading large teams, I think, is key. Um, on top of that, certainly, you know, communication skills are, are, you know, very much necessary here. You're going to be talking to a lot of people remotely, obviously. You might be, you know, overseeing folks that you never actually see in person. Um, so that's, you know, key as well. And then just sort of having, you know, knowing the ins and outs of all the various companies' workforce policies. You know, you're going to be handling uh, compensation issues might come up, tax issues might come up. What if a remote worker moves from California to Texas or to Florida? You know, what happens there? So they're going to kind of need to be a bit of a savant in terms of all the companies, various workplace policies, and that you think that might lend themselves to, you know, this person coming from the HR department. And while they might have HR experience, it doesn't necessarily mean this has to be, you know, an HR career person taking this role. They could be coming from operations or sales or just about anywhere. I do wonder too, Matt, if it's akin to chief financial officers got elevated after the financial crisis. Chief sustainability officers, I'm increasingly having conversations with them, with other C-suite officials, and they're both like executive vice presidents. They're on the same level. Is there this remote work czar that all of a sudden becomes a big player in the C-suite, kind of part of the core that's running the company? I mean, it might be, but you got to be careful there. I mean, think of all the attention we've paid to chief diversity officers, but mm-hmm. I've been told and plenty of studies have shown that that role can often be a bit of a backwater career-wise. You know, you're mm-hmm. kind of blamed for everything and you get credit for nothing. So there's a lot, a lot of turnover in that chief diversity officer role. So, um, you know, with this role specifically, I think, of course, if you do it well, if productivity soars under your purview as a, you know, as a remote workings are, then yes, it could certainly be uh, in line for uh, you know, a C-suite position. Um, but again, you know, uh, the jury's still out. We've got to see some people that have some actual experience in these roles. And it's keep, you know, remember, it's keeping people engaged and satisfied as well. It's not just about, okay, is productivity up 28% this quarter? Yeah, well, to that end, I do wonder to what extent this type of job is permanent. As you point out in your piece, and this is something I did not know, the term telecommuting was actually coined by a NASA worker in the early 1970s. And you do point out that in 2013, Yahoo abruptly ended its longstanding telecommuting policy. Um, that was years ago. I wonder, though, if, if this time is different, if this is the turning point where the American workforce is distributed. Well, we're definitely going to be more distributed. Yeah, I think that that is a lasting change uh, in the pandemic in terms of, yeah, in terms of the sustainability of this job specifically, though. Yes, we do say, and I spoke to an expert in HR issues at Cornell who said, hey, you know, if you do this job too well, you might make yourself uh, redundant and be out of a job. <laughs> but that was a bit tongue in cheek. I think yeah. there's always going to, need, going to be a need for somebody who really, you know, whose job it is to make sure that the remote workforce, especially if it's one in five workers, uh, white collar workers moving forward, you know, they're engaged, they're satisfied, they know what the company expects of them, um, you know, and the companies can, uh, you know, see it through here. Definitely a sign, though, that companies are trying to figure the way forward and and who they need in management to kind of, you know, see that way uh, at their companies. Joel Weber, thank you so much, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek on the remote access in Brooklyn, along with Matt Boyle, who is U.S. retail reporter, also Bloomberg News senior reporter for management, joining us on the phone from New York City. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So top of mind for us on this Monday, we've actually been talking about a lot of things when it comes to China specifically, but the U.S. and China holding their first high-level talks in months, and in doing so, highlighting deep differences, really suggesting, once again, the world's two biggest economies haven't quite found a clear path for improving their increasingly strained ties. So writing about that is our own Bloomberg New Economy editorial director, Andy Brown. He joins us here in our interactive broker studio. You have a great column uh, about going back several decades and how ping pong actually solved a lot of what ailed the U.S. and China in their relationship. That doesn't work anymore? Um, I'm afraid it doesn't. Um, You know, this was, it was almost exactly 50 years ago when a U.S. amateur ping pong group led by a weed-smoking hippie (laughs) Uh, I love it already. Got, got an invitation. Are you sure this isn't a Netflix series, Andy? <laughs> it or? should be. I, it's so improbable. I mean, they were in they were in Tokyo in a, a ping pong match. Zhou Enlai, the then Chinese premier, sees them and says, hey, we should invite them over to Beijing. And, of course, the intention was to break the ice with the U.S. And it led to Henry Kissinger's visit to China and the whole opening of China and U.S.-Chinese diplomatic relations. But the point I was making in, in, in my piece is that the reason these two countries got together is because they had a common enemy, and that was the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. That The Soviet Union and China had split. China needed a friend. The U.S., for its part, needed a counterweight to Soviet expansionism in Asia. When the Soviet Union collapses, the raison d'etre for the relationship collapses, and out comes all of the issues that have been suppressed for decades, like human rights. Mm-hmm. So if you look now at what just happened in Tianjin with this, with this visit by Wendy Sherman, the Deputy U.S. Secretary of State, the whole meeting is dominated by these contentious issues. Just to give you a flavor, she accuses China of genocide in Xinjiang. China turns around and accuses the United States of genocide against Native Americans. That is basically the way the meeting went. Really warm and cozy. Yeah, I don't think a ping pong tournament or a ping pong game is going to end this thaw anytime soon. But there's also the technological aspect of this, right? And and you write about that in in your column, Andy. Yeah, so tech, uh, you know, for a long time after the Soviet Union collapsed, people said, well, it's business. That's the ballast for the relationship. And now what you're seeing is that business, and particularly tech, has become an irritant in the relationship. And it's now part of a strategic competition between the U.S. and China, with China now, with this latest uh, eruption over DD and the ed tech sector over the weekend, which you've seen blowing up, China is now seeing U.S. investment in Chinese data companies as a national security threat. So now you're seeing decoupling across the board, um, including in the business sector, between these two large, world's two largest economies. We've talked about this and and we kind of joke but don't joke like follow the money and I want to follow investor money whether ultimately they pull back we've talked with investors and they're like it's going to continue U.S. investor money will still go in how do you see it sure I I mean you know U.S. investor money can still get into Chinese tech companies through Hong Kong through Shanghai there are various mechanisms in which you can trade shares Um, you know but 
What you're seeing now is China very explicitly saying, we're not that interested. In fact, we're not interested at all mm. in U.S. foreign investment in some of our most critical tech sectors. Well, you're, you're looking well, like because, you're... Well, because I think about when I started business news, like long, you know, years ago, but not so long ago. I mean, that was all... China wanted foreign direct right. investment, right? They wanted right. U.S. companies to come over and help. You couldn't own a facility, right? But you could right. invest in a joint China-U.S. facility because they, right. they wanted the know-how. Right. They wanted the know-how and they wanted, at, in the early stages, they wanted the funding. I mean, right. you, you know, you have to remember... Alibaba, these early tech companies, most of them, they were all funded by largely U.S. private equity or venture capital companies. So what happens when that goes away? Does it matter at this point? Well, I think it does matter. I mean, I think it matters that tech is now and, and uh, whole industrial areas are now seen as being areas of confrontation between the U.S. and China. I mean, you've got to remember that in almost every that supply chains in almost every industry in the world run through China. China right. touches everything. So, Andy, how does this play out? Because it, it seems like increasingly there are allies of the United States that are looking increasingly skeptical at China. And I'm, and I'm wondering if relations improve or if they continue to freeze and China becomes increasingly isolated. Look, you find a lot of rhetorical, um, uh, you know, that China, China, that the United States is building up allies to push back against China, but so far it's been rhetorical only, right? I mean, you, you, you don't see any uh, much appetite among U.S. allies for real sanctions. I think what you're seeing now with this Wendy Sherman visit is essentially stalemate. The idea is you've got to prevent this thing from spinning out of control. That's the modest expectation. So it, oh, well, go ahead. I was no, just going to say, Carol, I mean, to that point, and one thing that investors want to see from Tesla today is any news about growth in China, sales in China, and they're looking for how the company is actually doing in China, which I think speaks to the way that American companies still continue to think about the company or the country. Right now, Tesla is perceived as being useful for China to the extent that it can help set up a supply chain, you know, strengthen Chinese battery makers and so on. Wait, what happens when that mission is accomplished and China has developed mm. its own homegrown EV stars? Right. Uh, you'll then start to see, and you're, you're, you are already actually starting to see political pressure building against Tesla. Right. There's been a lot of criticism, right? And I mean, we've seen that kind of pushback. They had to do a full them. recall of right. all the cars. Right, exactly. Um, thank you so much. Great stuff, great column, uh, and so relevant. Because I feel like when it comes to our market story, we're hitting on this so many different times uh, over the next three hours. Andy Brown, he's editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy on the phone from New York City. Any chance, though, Andy, 10, 15 seconds, that they're just playing tough and they'll figure it out because they need each other or not so much anymore? Just quickly. Not so much. The key is going to be whether or not we get a summit meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, potentially in October at the G20 meeting. Let's see if Wendy Sherman can come back from her meetings in China with that in her pocket. Mark your calendars, everybody. Andy, you're the best. Andy Brown. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. What we have to make sure we do as the economy recovers is look at the data kind of broken down a bit. These funds are becoming more and more expensive. We'll be looking at $15 billion for their entry level. There have been waves of immigration that have faced a lot of resistance. There's a lot of color behind the scenes and a great untold story. How did Bezos really come out on top? As the cover says, Jeff wins. He always seems to win. <laughs> The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio.
It's today's Big Take, and it's by Julie Johnson, aerospace reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us now on the phone from Chicago. It is a story that focuses on Boeing and the brain drain that has been happening at Boeing in recent years. Julie, it's really great to have you on the show. I encourage everybody to check out this story. It is a fantastic one, and it goes a a deep dive into the history of the company, especially how it's changed in recent years. Just how bad is the brain drain, as one analyst you spoke to describes it, at Boeing? You know, it's it's definitely a a worry, and I know this is something that people um, within Boeing have been talking about and worried about as well. Uh, The company had to to cut deeply last year to survive COVID and the max grounding, and its rival in Europe, Airbus, did not. And um, so we're coming out of the you know other side of the crisis, and this is the point where you start to. To find out, did they let too many people, especially engineers, walk out the door? You know, it's a story that I uh, that I read, and I and I have the takeaway about share price, share buybacks, and I think to myself, it it, it seems like a story uh, of a company that is really really focused on its share price, perhaps to the detriment of of long term sustainability and thinking about the big picture of of what the company was and what it wants to be generations from now. You know, that is so well put. And I think that, you know, looking back on the the last decade, you could definitely make the the case that uh, just a lot of thought and resources and focus went into financial engineering. And um, I mean, Boeing, Boeing continued to build facilities and, um, and definitely, you know, had planes in the pipeline, but, um, along the way, did this, you know, did this company, the, the management team at, at the time sort of lose, you know, lose sight of the big dreams, the big bets that had made Boeing, you know, just such a pillar of, of American industrials? Julie, that's what I wonder. I mean, there was an era where Boeing was the place where so many engineers wanted to work, right? It was just incredible. And I do wonder... The financial engineering definitely going on or, you know, doing the buybacks and doing the dividends. But what also happened in terms of it being a visionary company, the company that was figuring out the next great airplane or the next great, you know, device uh, or, or vehicle into space? What happened? Where did that go wrong? Was that senior management? What was it? Well, um, so, yes. To some degree, senior management, and we could go back to the history of the merger with McDonnell Douglas Mm -hmm. and uh, where you had um, a management team who were really strongly influenced by GE and and Jack Jack Welch uh, winding up in in key positions at Boeing. So that's, I mean, that's part of the the history. And um, as maligned as Dennis Mullenberg is for his handling of the 737 Mm -hmm. MAX, I think he had aspirations. I mean, I, I don't think. I know he he really wanted to make this a great company. Um, he wanted, you know, I, he, he knew the history. He had spent his entire career at Boeing and um, as an engineer. And, you know, I think he... he um, was was thinking about space and you know and sort of the next iteration 
And that all came crashing down um, with with the 737 MAX crashes. And there's just been two years of of hell uh, for people who've been working at Boeing. Yeah. So where does the company go from here? I let out an audible gasp when I read that the 787 Dreamliner is nearly 20 years old, because to me, that still seems like the, the new thing at Boeing. And you no. also talk about the Starliner, Starliner spacecraft and the way that it competes with, with SpaceX. Where does it go from here, Julie? Yeah, so so it's, it's at an interesting juncture. It's got a new CEO, uh, Dave Calhoun, who who also came from GE but and and private equity so he he definitely has his creds as a cost cutter but at GE he made a huge gamble on uh, on a jet engine technology that went on to become right after 911 actually right. and it went on to become this huge success so so the jury's out but we'll yeah. see Well, it's a really deep dive. It's the Bloomberg Big Take today, and it's a must-read, and we'll put it out on Twitter. Uh, Julie Johnson, she's aerospace reporter here at Bloomberg News, covering it so well, joining us on the phone from Chicago. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Tim Stanovic. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.